Welcome to the Analytics of Dynasty podcast. I'm your host, Jordan McNamara, and this is the second guest we have on the, we've had on the podcast and someone that I've really been excited to talk to. I'm glad he was uh, fortunate to uh, be able to set this up and, and convince him to come on the podcast. Uh, Benjamin Robinson at Grinding the Mocks. How are you doing tonight, man? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, I, I just got to say, I, I really enjoy uh, your, your Grinding the Mocks, this project that you, I think it's a, I think it's a tremendous resource. Uh, and, you know, for me, it's it's great because you can just at this time of year get inundated with mock drafts and and all the media that goes along with it. And it can almost be like distorting of the mind. And so I can always revert <laughs> back to you know, I can always just type in grinding the mocks and see sort of where the player's actually at. And then I can get <laughs> I can sort of get a little bit more balanced. So uh, you have a great resource. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. You know, I'm. I feel the same. I used to feel the same way, you know. Um, this this project, uh, one of my best friends from college, Blair Douglas. We would, you know, the night of the draft, and you know, you you pull up your pull up on the couch, fire up the computer, and look at the latest Todd McShay mock draft, the latest Mike Mayock mock draft, and you're just kind of getting ready. And you know, one year I I, I went and uh, and visited you know Pittsburgh, and we we're watching the draft, and you know, sometimes you you know picks are off. You know, so um, I'm a Bengals fan and, you know, my, my, my friend Blair is a Steelers fan. And so this is the first year that I was that I was thinking about this stuff. I hadn't really started it yet. And, uh, you know, the the Steelers, um, they drafted Terrell Edmonds, uh, who's uh, the brother of Tremaine Edmonds, who everyone, you know, the first round pick. You, they both are from Virginia Tech and they're their brothers. And um, and so you, you, you see that pick and, you know, yeah, yeah, that's not that doesn't that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel like a first-round pick, and so when you know, but uh, the Bengals, they drafted Billy Price, the center from Ohio State that year, and you know I kind of had my suspicions about it, and so you know uh, we're sitting on the couch, and you say like, oh man, that pick just feels off, or like, you know that pick, you know that seems right about where it should be, and so you know it, it came from a, a place of, hey, there's what what kind of data is there that's out there? Because I'm a data-driven guy. You know, what can we use? What data sources are available to answer these types of questions about, you know, where players' draft stocks are? Because to be honest, draft stock is fake. It's not real, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, real stocks in real life go up and down, like they're influenced by market factors. And so draft stock in a draft analysts talk about it, fake. It doesn't really exist. I mean, if you, it only really exists if they have a constant updating of their big board and they can account. And so to me, it's like, Unless it's something that I, to me, that's how I think. If you are telling me that this is the case, that his draft stock is falling, I can get a sense of that. You know, I trust that some people have, you know, better sources than I do. And so whenever I talk with people who say, you know, my sources say, you know, I say, that's great. I'm glad that you have your sources. I don't, these are my sources. And so, you know, to be honest, the world that I come from is the world of social science research. And in the world of social science research, you know, there's been a lot of work and you know, people are interested in, in doing some reading. There's a really great kind of uh, he's a mix between a political scientist and a psychologist. His name is uh, Philip Tetlock from the University of Pennsylvania. And he's written a bunch of stuff about what he calls super forecasting, looking at kind of how, uh, you know, the, the crowd does in terms of predictor events. And he does it, um, studies it in the context of um, 
international relations quite a bit. Um, and so, you know, when I when I thought about this, these mock drafts, I said, you know, there's the research says that, you know, most more likely than not, the kind of aggregation of uh, forecasts is going to be more accurate in the long term uh, than than a single forecast alone. And so, you know, the the media, the mock draft media, you know, they're all over the place and the Internet has, has helped this uh, helped me a lot. There's so many mock drafts all over the place. You know, last year I had uh, 2000 some mock drafts and I think that this year I potentially could have even more. So the, the community is constantly growing and there's tons of opinions and they're all over the place. And so, you know, it really helps me and I'm glad that it helps you too. kind of, you know, uh, find some signal in that noise because it really is some days an echo chamber. And uh, so it's, it's really tough to know what's real, what's not real. And so I'm glad that my site, you know, grinding, which is uh, an homage to the, the, the online draft community in a way, because uh, none of this data would exist without them and all their, their work. I'm glad that it kind of is an oasis in the sea of, of noise of, uh, the, of the draft Twitter community. So I'm glad that you find some use out of it. And I'm glad that others do as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I wanted to sort of, um, I want to sort of ha- have you walk through it. I mean, how do you go about getting all of these drafts in terms of, I know you, you have some, uh, they have different degrees of, uh, different classifications that you give them. Um, but there's, it's my understanding there's fan mocks. There's, there's all, there's a, a whole variety of mock drafts that you actually put in the data. How do you go about actually getting it? So yeah, I, I, I scraped data. There was a time when I first started this project where, you know, uh, the first year when I was kind of piloting it, um, I would do some manual data entry or copying and pasting as much as I could. But, you know, over the past couple of years, I've automated a bunch of this because, you know, my, my day job, I'm a, I'm a data analyst, you know, data scientist. And so, you know, I, I, I have professional programming experience. And so I've written kind of some, some scraping functions that, um, you know, if you input um, data from a specific site, can pull that information and pull it together and then paste it into into my um, my data, my database, basically. So in terms of where I find these, people say, where do you find all these? Well, you know, Twitter has, has become pretty helpful. If you, you, I have a keyword search on Twitter and, you know, Google, you can get Google updates too. But I tend to, you know, um, for the most part, Twitter is very helpful. And there's also quite a few sites uh, that aggregate kind of, or, you know, mock drafts in terms of host, you know, basically showing most recent updates. So, um, you know, a big one that, uh, that does, it's a very nice interface is NFL mock draft database.com. That, that guy, I think his name is Denny. He does a lot of nice work, just kind of presenting an interface. Um, and, and it's, it's very well done, but, um, you know, there's also Walter football who I think is kind of like in some ways the supposed bad guys and draft Twitter because they've, They've been around, and or even in the online draft community, because they've been around for so long. But they also host um, a website where they have links of mock drafts that they tend to to post. And so I can usually go there, and you know, I tend to kind of just to, over the course of the week, I'll I'll have a list of mock drafts, and then you know, sometime over the weekend, I'll just kind of sit down and hammer them out in a couple hours and get them all scraped and formatted into the spreadsheet, and then you know do data quality checks and whatnot to make sure that any different spellings of Jeff Okuda or uh, Albert Okwegbunam, you know what I'm talking about? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot that goes into that. But, um, you know, the the fan expert and media classification, it's, it's for the most part 
it's pretty it's pretty subjective um you know what i do is you know if, if for the most part most people are fans experts are people who you know they are kind of authorities people look up to them they work for big major uh, media that don't focus on um so if you're a media member maybe you write for a newspaper or um for a in a city that has an nfl team or you work for an online publication that focuses on the NFL, but maybe not on the draft. And, uh, and yeah, so that's kind of how I break down fan and, and media and expert. And, you know, the reason I was interested in that was because one of the first questions I had when I started this project was, you know, experts, are they really experts? And so to be honest, uh, and so I figured, you know, that's probably in some ways worth testing. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately, when you do look at the kind of the very basically subjective categorizations that I put together, and you know, I'm always open to people saying that you know they're not a they're they're not a fan, they're an expert, or that person's not a expert, they're a media member, or vice versa. I'm always open to changing that. I don't think that changes too much around the margins. It, would, it wouldn't surprise me if the if you changed it even a little bit, that those would remain the same. Um, so, for the most part, experts experts do perform better in terms of mock draft accuracy. And that's something that I take into account when I when I perform my aggregations. It's not just a, a straight average. Otherwise, I would I would have my metric. I would call it average draft position. I, I'd call it ADP. But instead, I, I call the metric the main metric that I use. I call it expected draft position. Um, and so it's a, a mix of kind of average uh, draft position, and then we have some some weightings that we apply mainly for um, you know the prior of the person who made the mock draft. And there's some uh, weightings that are applied for, uh, you know, how far the mock draft was made from the day of the draft. Because, you know, ideally, as time goes on, uh, as we get closer to draft night, the mock draft should be more accurate. And we do see that in the data as well. Uh, and then there's all kinds of adjustments that I end up making uh, when it comes to, you know, certain positions. Because we know that data can be biased. And so one of the things that's uh, that you need to want to make have accurate you know predictions because you know for the most part you know there's a famous phrase um all models are wrong but some models are useful if you want to have a useful model you need to and a useful forecast it requires you to make adjustments and so one thing that i've noticed in the the two years of, of draft results that i have um that we're where i've been doing this project is that quarterbacks mock drafts tend to overvalue quarterbacks quite a bit they're the they're the most overvalued position in mock drafts uh, by quite a large amount, and that makes sense, right? Interesting. In, in terms of on the field in football, mm-hmm. so so they're 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 overvalued. At, at what point? Like, are they overvalued now? Would you say? Um, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I haven't looked back and seen over time. Does it change? It wouldn't surprise me if leading up to the draft, um, that that shot up. You know. Uh, Josh Hermsmeyer from 538 and he used my my data last year for an article that he he wrote right before the draft and right after the draft and you know one thing that he noticed was that the players that had the largest change in ADP uh, sample that he used of my data were quarterbacks so you know an example from last year um, of a quarterback who or two quarterbacks really who uh, who you know I would categorize as you know overvalued in, in mock drafts you know one is Drew Locke you know, he got drafted by the Broncos in the second round. And, you know, there was a decent amount of um, of uh, chatter that the Broncos would draft him in the first round with their pick. The Broncos 
smart decision. Uh, took Noah Fant in the first round, who, you know, pretty okay uh, rookie year. But I think people who drafted Noah Fant should feel okay um, in their dynasty leagues. Um, but yeah, Drew Locke, uh, you know, there were a lot of people who thought he, you know, very closely tied to the Broncos, and they were right just around the round late. Um, and, you know, and another guy who's, um, you know, average draft position in, in that kind of last month or two of the draft process, you know, maybe last month, I would say, went up quite a bit was um, the the quarterback uh, that was drafted last year uh, by the Carolina Panthers. Um, I'm, I'm blinking on his name, Will Greer, right? Will Greer. Yeah. So, yeah, Will Greer last year, you know, was another guy who, you know, people look at his numbers, you know, he was very, very efficient. In um, and so, you know, his – I think that there were some teams who were like, well, maybe there's some teams who who see something in him. And he ended up going, I think, in the third round. Um, so – and he was, I think, getting some some second round hype a bit in mock drafts. And so for the most part, in the first round, you know, there, there's something that I've been meaning to do with my, my process, which is also to kind of norm some of the results to historic draft data. So, you know, for example, this year – um, you know, big focus on wide receivers in the because of the you know historic nature people have been saying of, of this year's wide receiver draft class. And so people have been saying, you know, this year I've seen, you know, people, you know, I'll say Daniel Jeremiah, for example, has said something like in the first three rounds he has, or maybe it was Mel Kuyper, as somebody said, you know, that there are that he had, you know, 30 wide receivers with first to third round grades. And that's just to me it's kind of insane. I, I have, you know, maybe 15. Um, wide receivers that could go in the first three rounds, which is great. And that could, you know, that could still change for, you know, to be honest, the, you do need to kind of norm to a sense of like market share for, so to speak, for the round. So, you know, for example, quarterbacks last year, I think that was one of the things that I could have done better, which was, you know, in the 2018 draft, we had a, you know, a bumper class of quarterbacks, you know, Darnold, Mayfield, Rosen, uh, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen. Uh, and, you know, that was a lot. I think that, you know, five round. Um, and so that was a lot. And, you know, in my data, a player that the mock drafts really liked in that group as well was Mason Rudolph, who ended up getting drafted by the Steelers, I think, in the second or third round. Um, and so that's a sense of, I think, in some ways, people kind of got a little bit overexcited about the idea of, well, there's a fifth quarterback in there somewhere. And so, you know, I'm going to fit in that quarterback. I'm going to make it work. And so for me, I think in my process, I have to make better adjustments when it comes to quarterback, especially, you know, some of the other positions that have their positions that like punter, <laughs> kicker, fullback. I, I really don't care about those positions that much, but for the high profile positions, you know, quarterback, I, I want to try to get better with those, especially because it's so valuable. Um, so this year, you know, it's it's pretty solid so far. I think this year I project maybe four at most five quarterbacks um, in the first round, you know, Joe Burrow, Tua Tungavailoa, Justin Herbert, Jordan Love, and there's an outside chance maybe. I'm, I'm really not, not a believer at this point about Jacob Eason from Washington. Could be the fifth. I just don't, I, I really don't see it myself in terms of the data. He's kind of borderline first round, but you, you never know. So you, I don't want to say that it's impossible because, you know, probabilistically it's not. Uh, but for me, you know, four four wide, four quarterbacks in this year for the first round seems like a pretty solid, uh, pretty solid bet that I would be willing to put money down on if I was doing that. Um, so yeah, so there, there's there's quite a bit of of uh, variation in terms of you know year to year what what those look like, and it can vary, and that'll affect you know where people go. And 
So, you know, another thing that would be cool to do that I don't have as much time for is a kind of a dynamic model, but that wouldn't really be for anybody but me. Like, you know, if uh, last year we had six defensive tackles that went in the first round, and so you know, that's going to suppress players' draft stock sometimes quite a bit, but we don't know that coming into the draft night. So uh, it's a fun thing to watch and track, and there's a lot of dynamics going on, and the, the first round gets a lot of attention, but, you know, there's lots of um, later on by teams and even by players, you know, like last year, a great example was Terry McLaurin from Ohio State got drafted by Washington, um, you know, in the I think in the third round. And, you know, this year for a long time, I was tracking uh, the Ohio State receivers. And for a while, K.J. Hill, the wide receiver from Ohio State, was tracking really closely with Terry McLaurin. And then, you know, the combine happened and, uh, you know, Terry McLaurin had a pretty good combine. K.J. Hill, not so much. So their paths are beginning to diverge. But you know, paying attention to is sometimes the combine, it, it can be some, sometimes there's the effects for players that stick. And sometimes they tend to reverse, revert back to where they were in the data. So I just wrote a blog post that I posted this week um, about how the combine affects draft stock. And so a lot of this stuff is kind of, uh, I'm interested in because it's sort of horse race material. You know, the everyone views the, the key, you know, moments in the draft process are, you know, the end of the college season, the the bowl season. Um, that tends to be like prospects' last chance to put, you know, tape, you know, that against supposedly good competition. It, it varies quite a bit, but that's supposed to be a line of demarcation. You know, then there's players, the draft selections that happen, and then we have all-star games, you know, the senior bowl, and then you have the combine, and then there's really not a lot. And then we're just kind of coasting, coasting, coasting until, you know, the, until the draft. So to me, I'm interested as well in some of these horse race sort of uh, sort of things. So I, you know, I wrote an article, like I said, about the combine, and it turns out that for the most part, the combine just kind of reach when it comes to players' draft stock when it, in the mock drafts. So there's a there's quite a bit of you know a normal distribution pretty much when it comes to you know the players change in ADP two weeks before and two weeks after the draft. But if you actually you know, look at that data a little bit closer. And you control for, um, you know, players' relative athleticism. Maybe some of you know, your listeners have heard of Kent Lee Platy's relative athletic score. And if you you kind of look at the high-level relative athletic score and you and you uh, classify those into you know poor athletes, athletes above average athletes, and elite athletes, you know, players that are above average athletes or average athletes in terms of the combine numbers. And we know that there's a lot of players who don't test at the combine because they're injured or they're elite players and they don't want to concern themselves they don't want to give people more information to doubt them on they want people to just kind of think of them in the perfect way that they thought of them coming into the combine um so that number we know it's it's not exactly 100 percent representative of everybody's draft stock but of the people who participate in the combine athletes and above average athletes tend to not have that much change but the players that do end up getting penalized and who do end up getting helped out in terms of mock draft stock are elite athletes they get they get rewarded and on you know for the most part you know poor athletes get punished and so the player that i looked at um a little bit in more focus in this blog post was dk metcalf last year who mock drafts were really high on um so you know he came in and you know in some ways there's an expectation game that he how because people thought of him as a freak athlete there are all these pictures that were coming out of him in training and very impressive like not going to deny um, and so, you know, he tended to trend up right before the combine. And then afterward, you know, he tended to kind of do continue to do really well. And then eventually 
you know, came back down to earth. And then his draft selection overall, you know, I thought of him as a kind of end of the round, uh, end of first round, mid end of round, first, first round pick. And he ended up going to pick 64 to the Seahawks. Um, and then the other side of the coin is Orlando Brown, Oklahoma in 2018 as well. Um, in 2019 as well, you know, he had one of the worst combines in the history of the combine and, uh, you know, was thought of as a first round pick and ended up going in the third round uh, to the Baltimore Ravens. So, yeah, this horse race stuff to me is kind of interesting. At the end of the day, you know, my goal is to have a pretty decent um, kind of range of outcomes for players when it comes to the draft because I find that having a mock draft is nice, but it limits you because you only get to say, I think this player is going to go at this point instead of the real question, which is, you know, it's maybe centered at this point that you're saying, but in reality, every player has, um, you know, a, a range of outcomes. And so this project to me helps me think a smarter way about the range of outcomes that a player might have. So let me ask you about the range of outcomes. So you have, so you, for each player, you, uh, you have basically an expected draft position or what you call EDP. And then you have a lower limit EDP and then you have an upper limit EDP. Mm-hmm. What, what are those meant to reflect in terms of confidence in, in terms of how much is there a certain uh, confidence percentage there's on those or sort of what are those meant to reflect? So, yeah, so those are um, the outputs of like, it's supposed to represent an interval. I honestly think for a lot of them, sometimes the sample is, is too large and it ends up centering really closely around certain numbers. I think in, in the, in the top 10, for the most part, some of the, there's not a lot of wiggle room as much as I would like in some of these so I wouldn't view this as kind of the set in stone probability. I'd, I'd rather, if I was going to have a range of outcomes that I would think probabilistically about, I wouldn't use those numbers exactly. But it's kind of a guiding point that I have. At the least, I can say, hey, you know, in my, um, you know, that I'm using right now in the method in the player level model that I have, you know, this is where based on you know, the sample size, based on the mean, based on where the, the model is kind of fitting the data, um, this is where we have uh, the center of the distribution, and this is what it looks like on either side. So it's a little confusing for sure. Um, and so, you know, for example, you know, Joe Burrow, you know, he can go anywhere in 1 to 1.5. Um, and so I have rankings as well where, you know, those are the the things that I end up to test my predictions. Um, those are those rankings, and those tend to be, for the most part, more accurate um, relative to the the raw expected draft position, but those are supposed to represent, you know, 95% confidence interval from the, the method that I'm using. But, you know, I kind of, I'm kind of skeptical of them a little bit too. I think it's healthy as an analyst to be skeptical of some of your your results. And so I post them because I think it's, I want to have, I want to give people a range of outcomes, but at the same time, I'm I'm sometimes a little confused by them too, because, you know, I I think when I look at my day pretty good about, and then I look at Tua Tonga-Vailoa, who I have, number three in my data. And so, you know, there's some expectations in that because, you know, I have him ranked number three, but his expected draft position is four. So there's an expectation built in that potentially a team will trade up to three and draft him. So, you know, there's that, but then on the low end, I have him going, you know, (laughs) 3.7 and uh, upper limit 4.4. So do I really think that Tua's draft position is only between, you know, 3.7 3.7 and 4.4 with, I mean, four could be the average. I mean, I feel okay saying that. I, I don't feel like that's off potentially from what could happen, but I do think that on the lower end, maybe, you know, there's more, there's more, uh, there's more to be had there. You know, I think his range, if you had to ask, you know, an analyst, if you asked, if you pulled a bunch of different analysts and said, 
I want to look at your the range of where you think players could go from. Yeah, I would I would feel a little bit better about some about that range, but because when you make a mock draft, you're only saying I predict this. You're not giving a range every single time you do it. Then you do at the moment. So to me, I think it's good to have some skepticism about these numbers. The range of outcomes, I think, for players that have less mock drafts, is a little bit more convincing. So you know, uh, when you look at some of the the um, draft stock charts that I have and on my website. Uh, you can look under the pre-draft process and, and go to draft stock charts. There's, you know, for some of those players that have, you know, less, fewer mock drafts, you know, you tend to have a, a much wider level of expected draft position. And I always feel comfortable sometimes looking at those. And so I sometimes feel overly confident in my, my um, projections, projections, because in some ways, some of it is kind of self-reinforcing. Um, and so that's why I try to adjust and I try to do some weighting and, you know, there's more work that I'm trying to do to, to continue to improve my accuracy and, and provide you know a better sense of what the real distribution is. But I find that this is helpful um, and rel- it's reflective of public information and, and mock drafts are you know a little slow to react to public data. So you know for example, there are always players on the night of the draft where you suddenly hear stuff. So for example, 2018, you know, um, projected player was Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold did not go number one, but it came out later in the day that Baker Mayfield went number one. So you can kind of use some common sense and say, you know, that doesn't look right, you know, but ultimately um, you kind of, you can, you can kind of restack the deck a little bit at that point. Uh, but, you know, last year I had a player in my top 10 and a lot of people did Jawan Taylor, offensive tackle from Florida, um, who it was a very good secret apparently, because it didn't come out until draft night that he had some injury issue. And so he ended up going to the Jaguars in the second round instead of like a, the, the Drew Locke experience that I mentioned earlier. Um, so to me, it's healthy to have a conversation that looks at a range of outcomes. For, for me, on my end, I, I want to try to do more to make kind of a more realistic range. And so you know, that's something that I'm going to continue to work on um, you know, in my spare time when I'm not collecting data, because that's honestly what takes up most of the time with this project. And that's something that I spend a lot of last off season working on was, you know, trying to improve the efficiency of my data collection process. And, you know, this year, and then this spending more time on looking at the range of outcomes and improving some of my accuracy. So yeah, it's a good question. I think it's good to, to move from a, this player can only go here. This player can go in a range of spots and let's be smart about how we think about that. Yeah, no, I like that. And I kind of, I, it was interesting because there's some of, I think you exactly hit it on the head. There's at the, I guess at the extremes, it's more, um, it's very limited in terms of range. But once you get sort of down the board a little bit outside that top 10 or so, you get to see a little bit more range, which I, I think makes, um, makes a lot of sense when you sort of, uh, when you think about it. Um, do you, how do you, have you seen any trends on, I know you talked about the quarterback thing earlier. Um, yeah. for, for me, like it's the past couple of years, I, I would say, um, Baker Mayfield in 2018 in particular. Um, I think Kyler Murray to some extent in 2019, although I think it happened earlier than it did with Baker Mayfield. You, you got a sense of, uh, that they were quote rising and yeah. that, that the break came, I think for Mayfield, it came, I mean, in in the week before, in the week of that draft, I mean, I got futures at 
10 to one for him to be number one overall. Um, and uh, by the time the draft went, he was, you know, minus 500 or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it moved really, really quickly in terms of the, the betting market. Is there, are there players that we should sort of be on the lookout for? Is there anything we can sort of look at and say, Hey, here's, here's a place to sort of monitor or, um, how would, how do you, with your data, is there any is there any trends there that we can sort of that we can sort of get signal from? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I that I've been interested in trying to understand, and you know, this is another project where it's like, well, if I had time, I would look into that. There's, I think, there's an interesting social network in the mock drafts, and so let, let me let me say what I mean by that. So, when I categorize fans and media and experts, you know, one of the reasons if I think you're an expert is because I think people pay attention to you, and so. You know, for example, you know, a guy like uh, Daniel Jeremiah from uh, the NFL Network, you know, he kind of was one of the first people that went, you know, and I, I don't always read all the mock, but every now and then you see the first five picks. And, you know, for the longest time, it was Joe Burrow, Chase Young, Jeff Okuda. Um, and then, you know, after that, there was, you know, Isaiah Simmons, Derek Brown, Justin Herbert. And and then you saw Derek, Daniel Jeremiah's mock draft one time, and it was Makai Becton. And I was like, whoa, I hadn't thought about Makai Becton as a first round pick or top, not a first round, even a first round pick. I hadn't thought of him as a, at all throughout the process. And so every now and again, again, there are thought leaders who kind of put their foot down and say, I've been talking to my sources and they say Makai Becton is a guy to watch. And so um, I think there's an interesting story. There's potentially some interesting research, some network analysis that could look at who are the true opinion leaders, you know, when someone makes a pick on this player, who, you know, how does it follow? Um, and so, you know, to me, that, that's something that I'm interested in, you know, for the quarterbacks at the top, you know, each one of them has a different story for Baker Mayfield. You know, he had some mock drafts, throughout, you know, uh, he came into the year with you know a good pedigree and there were people saying, Hey, let's, let's watch this guy. You know, he did really well, you know, he won the Heisman trophy. And so there was a, a lot of, a lot of buzz around him. At the same time, people had this idea of Sam Darnold being number one, and he really, for the most part, was number one throughout the entire process. Um, Kyler Murray, you know, a lot of there was it's hard to say where he was because so many people had just written him off because um, and so the for and for Joe Burrow, it's kind of more of a Baker Mayfield story, though not as strong of a pedigree coming into the season, and so maybe you know people had him as a, a fourth or fifth round guy some people i heard people say i I would guess more like fifth sixth um so in terms of you know where to watch players you know i'm not 100 percent sure i think the combine for some of the when i think of like important positions in fantasy football it's all on offense so for running back uh you know a player that i think the combine has does a lot has a huge positions for certain combine drills and so you know i would look to um, you know, some of the people who've analyzed data and look at how, um, you know, some of those athletic drills get incorporated into, and athletic numbers really get incorporated in some of the modeling that's done. So Hayden Winks from Roto World has done a really nice job uh, looking at some of the different positions and looking at metrics that matter, um, knows that, and he has a, a very fantasy focus. Um, and so, you know, this year, um, you know, players that looked really good coming into the, um, the combine and didn't look as good coming out where, where guys like uh, where was a player like JK and a player who looked, you know, decent coming into the, the combine and looks a lot better coming out of the combine is a guy 
like uh, Jonathan Taylor, the running back from Wisconsin. So to me, I, I haven't monitored this as much because the horse race to me is a little more interesting in just terms of, of, of uh, storyline stuff. I'm not necessarily following it and, and seeing it, you know, there's some, there's always some interesting stuff in the, in the trend, not as much to me in the exact raw number of where players are. Um, so, you know, for the example of a player who's not even in the draft, Travis Etienne from Clemson, um, you know, declared at the last minute saying he wasn't coming out. Um, and, you know, and in my data, he had been kind of trending to a sort of a second round status while J.K. Dobbins had been growing. So to me, that was interesting to say, hey, you know, people watched the college football playoff and they saw J.K. Dobbins have an amazing game against Clemson. They saw Travis Etienne play and they saw him have two pretty good games against Ohio State and LSU respectively, but it didn't move the needle for him as much. And he ended up going back to school because he wants to be a first round running back. And I respect that. Um, you know, in terms of the receiver, it's, it's really interesting because it's, it's not always 100% sure what the market values. So last year, two players, you know, one I mentioned earlier, uh, DK Metcalf. And I'll mention two others that are, should be familiar to folks. One, and both of them have decent expectations. One, you know, was A.J. Brown, from also from Ole Miss, who ended up getting drafted also, I think, also in the second round by the Tennessee Titans and had an awesome year. Um, you know, there was the combine, I think, it, it didn't, I'm not sure, I don't think it did much for him. I always thought of him as a first-round player, and mock drafts did too. And he ended up going in the second. And an, another example of a player who I thought had a decent combine as well, and some of the quantitative metric, Hakeem Butler, wide receiver from Iowa State. So, you know, this year with wide receivers, I think it's a decent bet that, um, you know, you should probably try to draft some of the players that went in the first three rounds. It's because the depth of the wide receiver position in this year's class, you got to gotta trust what some of the experts are saying about that, especially people who have been evaluating draft prospects a lot longer than me because this is only my third year of doing this stuff. But, you know, to me, I, I trust some of the, the, the models that guys like Hayden Winks have, have built. And then also, you know, I, I also follow pretty closely the guys from Pro Football Focus. Um, and, and, you know, I trust that, you know, though they're looking at it in terms of a more of like an NFL perspective sometimes than a fantasy perspective, um, you know, they t- I, I tend to look at their data as well. And I tend to, to use those quotes by both quite a lot when I think about, hey, when, you know, when I see some of those models, I kind of look at my players and, and how I and, and see how they kind of think about it from an evaluation perspective versus my kind of more valuation based perspective. And so to me, you know, you, if you're trying to find, you know, a player like Terry McLaurin, uh, for the most part, those players don't really, I, I mean, my guess just based on success rates that those players mostly don't exist in later than the fourth round, probably. And I haven't done a whole deep dive on NFL success rates, but, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if you saw the, the, the hit rate on wide receivers and maybe looking at like lifetime fan, um, you know, drops quite precipitously going from round to round. And you might luck in a player that does really well in, in later than the fourth round, but for the most part, those guys don't last. So, you know, the, the third round and forward and this year, there should be, like I said, 15 guys. So, you know, in those rookie drafts that are happening, um, you know, you got to kind of weigh some of the, you got to think about it a little differently. Cause I think there's going to be a lot of guys who have shots, you know, going into last year, I remember seeing a lot of stuff pop up in my feed a bit about, um, and how he was thought of really super highly because he had a lot of the metrics that people cared about. Um, you know, a, another player to watch this year was Brandon Ayuk, his running mate last year from Arizona state. There are a bunch of players, you know, because 
you can't draft a wide receiver every pick and you sh- and the the draft you know people have teams have lots of different needs and so there won't be you know 10 wide receivers i don't i wouldn't i i would think that there's not going to be 10 wide receivers in the first round but there'll be guys who potentially in other years would be drafted higher because the position you know relative scarcity relative to this year where we have a relative surplus when it comes to wide receivers so this year i wouldn't surprise me if you know some of the players that get drafted more into the third round and maybe sometimes even in the early fourth round potentially could be players that are worth targeting. You know, one thing that's different this year is the tight end class versus last year. Tight end class, there's really not an elite guy. You know, last year, TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant were elite guys from Iowa, and there was a a pretty decent chance they would both be first-round guys, and they did. You know, Hawkinson to the Lions and with elite numbers and elite athleticism. And and elite athleticism and pretty good numbers, especially for college tight ends. You know, this year there's not that guy. Um, you know, it's a similar deal to um, Kyler Murray a little bit last year where um, Cole Komet, the tight end from Notre Dame, there was a lot of thought that he wasn't even going to be declaring this year, that he would go back and he was going to play baseball as well. And then he got word that, oh, yeah, the tight end class isn't that good this year. That could be good for me. Yeah, he's a projected second round pick um, out of Notre Dame. Um, and there's a bunch of other tight ends that, uh, you know, for example, hey, the world is is pretty high on Harrison Bryant uh, from uh, Florida Atlantic, not to be confused with Hunter uh, from Washington, um, who, you know, Hunter didn't have a super awesome combine. Harrison seemed to, I think, have an OK uh, combine. Uh, you know, there's a, a small school tight end this year as well. Um, you know, 2017, there was Adam Shaheen from uh, Ashland. This year version of that is Adam Troutman from Dayton. Uh, so, uh, you know, the tight end class this year is, is, is speaking. And, you know, something that I want to do as well is use mock draft data to look at the kind of relative strengths of some of the, the draft class this year versus last year. Um, and, and looking kind of at percentiles in terms of the mock draft, like what does the distribution of wide receivers look like? And this year I would expect it to look a lot different than it did in 2018 or it did in 2019. And running back is always a weird position to uh, evaluate, you know, last year I only thought one player would be a first-run running back, and a lot of people agreed. It's Josh Jacobs, who I think had a pretty good fantasy season. So it's always helpful to kind of think about teams that are going to take a running back in the first round. And last year, you know, the John Gruden, Mike Mayock, you know, if I had to pick it, that was kind of a dead giveaway. And so I didn't get that pick exactly right because, for the most part, I thought that the Raiders would use one of their three first-round picks on a running back, but I thought it would be the last one because for the most part, my expectation would be that not a lot of teams were going to be thinking about taking a running back in the first round. This year, mock drafts seemed set on the idea that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to take the running back. I don't think that's going to happen based on what I think about the the Chiefs, you know, draft history when it comes to running backs. So, you know, I, I, there, this could be a year where once again, we have zero running backs in the first round. That wouldn't surprise me just because, there's so many wide receivers. There's quarterbacks. Offensive tackle position there is, this year is pretty stacked. There should be at least four or five first-round offensive tackles. And so when you think about that, you know, four or five quarterbacks plus, you know, five offensive tackles plus, like, five or six, you know, uh, wide receivers plus, you know, Isaiah Simmons and the linebackers that are going to go and the defensive ends and the defensive tackles. To me, I just think that on a numbers game, running backs are kind of the odd position out. And so I, I suspect there'll be quite a few second-round running backs like I said, DeAndre Swift, I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised if he was a first-round pick, but I think of him as more of a second-round pick. You know, Jonathan Taylor, post-combine, is going to be fun to track. J.K. Dobbins, 
from Ohio State. Um, those are all players that I think are are worth looking at some more on the high end. And, you know, on the low end, it's, it's a little different. You know, when I think of players that are kind of surprising me when it comes to, to running back this year, it's – let me pull the numbers up real quick while I think about this. Clyde Edwards-Elair from LSU, um, Zach Moss from Utah, uh, and Cam Akers from Florida State are also guys that kind of come after that that first tier of running backs that I project to be, for the most part, second-round picks. Um, but those other running backs are going to be, you know, third, fourth round picks potentially. Um, so yeah, yeah, running back class is not as not as high on the on the top, but there's like a few pretty strong candidates um, for second round that I think are are decent early impact. Yeah, it's interesting because I J.K. Dobbins, Jonathan Taylor. Yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting, sort of. Uh, as I was listening to you talk and, and you were talking earlier about the defensive linemen and, and you sort of, um, and something I've picked up on a little bit, I think this year is we've been blessed with really good running back classes in the past, like three years, you know, and, and so you're almost at a point where there's not as much demand. So it's not, it might, you know, sort of the, the depth of class uh and you know there's there's maybe more players uh that qualify for being uh you know top three round wide receivers uh this year but there's a more of a demand for them too whereas at like running back for example like i think in a, you know the jonathan taylor's case to be a first round pick is really i think really good in terms of his overall profile his overall metrics and athleticism and all of those things his fundamentals uh, it just seems like there's there's a couple of things going on. There's a lot of depth at running back in the NFL already, and it's a deep class. You just basically have you know you have uh, a lack of demand and you have a lot of supply, so it's just dropping the cost a little bit. So it's interesting sort of to hear you talk about that with other positions because that's something I've felt a, a lot about the running back position this year. Yeah, I mean, so I'm not I don't believe you know there's like running backs don't matter. You know we know in fantasy. Football, better it, it helps a lot to have good running backs in fantasy football so uh, you know I, I think about it differently sometimes for diff- the different audiences but yeah you're right you know it's not just that we have a the supply demand you know issue that, we, that you brought up but also it's about just the the knowledge about what matters in the league and we know that passing is much more efficient than running and teams that pass well tend to do really well um and when it look when you look at the expected points added per play of the playoff teams this year, almost all of them were really, really good, efficient passers. Yeah, for the sure. The Ravens, uh, the you know the Forty ers you know they were also good at running the ball. <laughs> the Forty ers and the Ravens, but they also had sneakily efficient you know passing games. And so you know I think that not only is the is the draft a good way to get it's, it's obviously it's the, really the only way that you know teams can get cheap. Uh, these like cheap commodities relative to what they would potentially get on an open market. Um, you know, and I'd like kind of thank God because I'm a Bengals fan and, you know, I don't think the Bengals are yet a top quarterback is to get lucky in the draft. And this year with, with Joe Burrow, they've kind of gotten lucky um, because I, I wasn't as excited about Justin Herbert uh, given, you know, when Tua got hurt. Uh, but yeah, no, the, the end of the running back position has been devalued because for the most part, people realize that, you know, a 95 percentile running back, versus a 75th percentile running back, theoretically, the difference in actual value for an NFL team, the difference between, you know, those two players in terms of winning your winning games doesn't really make a big difference or doesn't make as much of a difference as you might think. And so, you know, the teams like the Tennessee Titans, you know, 
you know, the emergence of Ryan Tannehill, the emergence of A.J. Brown uh, helping a lot, um, pushed them to the playoffs. And then in the playoffs, they turned into like this different team. And I kind of wondered where Ryan Tannehill went. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, the running back position, it's a strange thing. And so, you know, uh, I think people are learning more and more. So in 2018, um, I had uh, Darius Geis as a first round running back. In addition to, um, you know, a bunch of other players, I Barkley, obviously, in, in 2018. Um, I'm trying to think of the first round running backs from 2018. Sonny Michelle. Um, and then, you know, the surprise, another surprise from the 2018 draft. And that kind of makes you reevaluate things quite a bit. So, you know, 2018, we had that surprise of Terrell Edmonds that for the Steelers that really changed things a lot. And in, in 2018, we also had Rashad Penny for, the, for all the analytically minded Seahawks fans, you know, <laughs> totally going insane when Rashad Penny went, you know, he got he had good production I, I, in college. You know, I, I I really didn't follow his production that much. I just knew that he was well senior bowl. Uh, apparently the Seattle Seahawks are slaves to the senior bowl because in 2018, Rashad Penny goes to the senior bowl and they end up drafting him last year. The, the Seahawks also make kind of a heterodox heterodox kind of draft pick with uh, LJ Collier from TCU. And uh, so, you know, for the Seahawks, you know, it's a little hard to pick, um, what guy they're going to go after because in the past couple of years, they've been pretty heterodox. And um, when I look at uh, the difference between expected, you know, draft uh, position and actual team by team basis, you know, there's some teams that can afford to do stuff like that. The Seahawks are one of those teams because they have Russell Wilson. And so when you have a guy like Russell Wilson, you can make mistakes in the draft and still do really well because he's a top quarterback in the league and quarterback is so crucial to winning games. Um, and then you also look at teams like uh, that have a, a difference between quite a big difference between expected draft position and actual draft position, um, the Cleveland Browns. Um, and so, you know, one of those ones is the is the going number one instead of number four. But we can kind of throw that out. Um, you know, they drafted, dear, um, you know, um, uh, Ward, the cornerback. Uh, they drafted him a bit earlier than expected in 2018. And in 2019, uh, they drafted. In the third round, a guy named, I think in the third round, Sione Takitaki, which was a linebacker from Brigham Young a bit earlier than I had thought. But then, you know, they also get Greedy Williams in the second round when, you know, I thought he was a potential first round pick. Um, so, yeah, this like draft surplus value question for teams is really interesting and it has as much of a relationship with winning games as you might think. Because for the most part, if you have quarterback, some of those other picks, you, you get a little bit more leeway when it comes to, you know, missing on a player like you can. Uh, take a first round running back um, like the Patriots did in 2018 with Sony Michelle and win a Super Bowl. <laughs> um, because for the most part, he's just a guy and your team was already set up to win a Super Bowl pretty much as it is. Uh, but yeah, the Seahawks are a team that tends to be pretty heterodox. The Browns tend to be pretty heterodox. Niners. So these are teams that, you know, the Colts, when you think about teams that, you know, draft in terms of their guys, um, it shows up in the data a bit too. Um, and so that's more of a post draft type of thing like I can't tell what a, a team's you know um, expect I don't have a, a, an idea of what a team's you know uh, expected draft surplus value is going to be but yeah some of those teams they're they're well known for having certain processes and they tend to think about players differently than the rest of the league and some of them have done really well re regardless of whether they have a good quarterback it's interesting to it's always you know kind of interesting to look at the teams that kind of flow fall at either of the ends and sometimes the teams that are pretty for the most part boring when it comes to draft they don't tend to draft too many players you know different 
uh, from expected, and, and those tend to be teams that you would think of like the Bears, the Jets, the Steelers, you know, the Bengals. They tend to draft players, you know, around where they're expected. The Rams, um, and so sometimes you know maybe more swings at guys. Um, a team that has done really well with limited draft capital um, for me has been the New Orleans Saints. They've done really well with the draft in terms of my, you know, the expected draft value versus actual draft value, especially last year. They didn't really even have that many picks because in 2018, they traded up to draft Marcus Davenport, the defensive end from uh, University of Texas, San Antonio. Uh, maybe it was from UTEP, I think. I forget. One of those Texas schools. <laughs> um, and so they only had like they had like two main picks last year. Eric McCoy in the second round from Texas A&M borderline first round second round pick that they got their selection in the second round and then you know they also drafted chauncey gardner johnson who a lot of people had in the first round and that ended up being a third or fourth round pick so it's interesting to see you know on either side of the coin teams that are thought of as you know heterodox thinkers teams that kind of tend to draft players where they kind of are going to be expected to be at and teams who kind of you know tend to, to get good value like for example the tennessee titans great value with aj brown you know what a what a great pick, and then uh, last twenty um, yeah in twenty eighteen so two drafts ago Harold Landry the pass rusher from Boston College so you know Tennessee Titans are a team that you know when I look at, at the draft I tend to think they get really good value out of the draft and then a team like the Seahawks maybe not as much but because they have the quarterback you know they're going to do you know better on the field uh, for the most part than the Titans although the Titans this year you know got pretty lucky and. You know, Ryan Tannehill turned into a completion percentage over expectation king. Um, <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, it's, it's it, anything can happen. So to me, like, I don't, uh, from the fantasy football perspective, when I talk to people about how these, these team numbers look, you know, you can have a draft that's heterodox in fantasy football and still do well if, uh, if you trust your projection system. You know, I view it from the a point of efficiency in terms of your limited resources. So you only have a certain number of picks. So you should try to maximize the, the efficiency of your picks as much as possible. So just because you have a player who's ranked, you know, 10th overall, if you can get that player ranked 50th over in the 50th spot, that's a huge win for you. Um, and so, you know, that's why I don't think, you know, this draft surplus value is the be all end all because heterodox thinking can work out in your favor. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. That's a great point. Um, I just to follow up on one thing you said, uh, yeah, he was uh, Marcus Davenport was uh, University of Texas said um, uh, San Antonio and gotcha. um, the hit rate on wide receivers in the in day three, five percent. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you're 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 dead on there. Let me ask you this as, as one last question to sort of put to put a bow on this conversation, which I think is which I think is great. And I think it's helpful in terms of how to think about these players and how to think about the draft and, and going forward. Have you had. I mean, I know that there's some game theory or some, uh, you know, war games, if you will, uh, of of NFL teams sort of plotting out boards and and how the draft might fall in terms of who might fall to them and sort of some planning for these sorts of things. Have you had any outreach or do you know if NFL teams are, are, look, are using uh, your data or any of your resources in terms of um, whether it's whether it's uh, analysis or whether it's it's uh, using um, you as a consultant or anything like that in terms of in terms of your data. Uh, yeah. So I so one thing that was really encouraging was um, 
you know, uh, hearing that teams actually do use mock draft data. So I was at the Carnegie Mellon Sports Analytics Conference last year and then talked with some people from some teams. And they're like, yeah, we have models that do this. We, we, we look at mock drafts. Um, so, and we know um, anecdotally, um, so Mike Lombardi, the former front office executive, um, you know, he's talked about how in the past the, the teams that he's been at have used mock drafts, sometimes using models and sometimes just using, uh, just using ones that they kind of trust. So there used to be a guy, I don't remember his name, I, I think he worked in Dallas Morning News or something like that, who put out a mock draft that every year, you know, was like a guiding light. Like he was so, he was so like dialed into the pulse of the league that, um, you know, he did a really good job in the first round. And that was a helpful to the 49ers being in the right position to draft Jerry Rice. So use this data. Um, I think currently some teams are using this data quite a bit. I know that the analytically smart teams do this to a certain extent. I'm not sure if they're doing it to the um, the sample that I have. Um, you know, and I haven't heard anything from NFL teams as of yet. I think that'd be a pretty cool experience uh, to have. And so, uh, you know, I've done some outreach myself too, but um, for the most part, um, you know, just kind of trying to publicly kind of promote this type of thinking and, and talking with people and just thinking about the draft in a more quantitative way. Uh, but yeah, mock drafts, I think, have a place to play. I know teams do, like you said, they do war games. Teams will do scenarios because I think it's good preparation for them. Um, to think about it in the moment of, hey, if this thing happens, you know, what does our, our board look like? Or how do we feel about positional value in this part of the draft? And so I think it's healthy for teams to do that. For me, this this helps anchor some of the expectations or some of the biases maybe that people have. Um, so, you know, the the NFL teams have scouting departments who have really done like top-notch work, you know, for the most part on evaluating these players, looking to know them personally and their backgrounds and their medical history and a lot of that stuff we're not privy to. So you kind of got to trust that they have more information than us. But sometimes we also uh, we also know that sometimes too much information can be overwhelming and teams can be kind of lose the um, the forest for the, the for the trees, you know, when they look at these players. So to me, you know, this data can be helpful and uh, in some ways from from you making what I would call like a stupid pick like maybe overvaluing a player a lot unless your your evaluation system you know has a really really great on this guy and you feel very confident about it. So the example that I tend to give um, are two from last year's draft, one that was a higher pick and the other that was a, a little bit lower. And so one pick was the you know the quote unquote least valuable pick in terms of um, just uh, when you adjust for you know the draft position of the of the player. Um, when you value the first round picks more valuable than some of the other picks. You know, Clellan Farrell, the defensive end from Clemson, who was drafted by the Raiders number four, huge surprise. That's probably one of the least valuable uh, of the past three years. And then my Cincinnati Bengals drafted a guy named Drew Sample, yeah, the tight end from Washington last year. I think they wanted him to be their Will Disley, <laughs> um, and it didn't really work out this year as much. But yeah, to me, I think this helps, you know, when you're thinking about whether you want to make a trade, about, you know, where some of these players, you know, what are their range of outcomes it helps you kind of, it helps kind of do a, a little bit of a check in your thinking. People tend to be really confident in their uh, about you know that they know what's they know it's what. So you know it comes back to this research from Cade Massey and Richard Thaler. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard about it about you know how they look at trades in the draft and they specifically look at teams that trade up in the draft. And when you trade up in the draft, it usually means that you're trying to get ahead of somebody because you, you really want that player. Um, and so for the most part, when people trade up. 
they get to end up uh, they for the most part end up losing out on the on that cost benefit um, analysis. So for the most part, you know when you look at what teams got and the players that they got from those trades and you know for the most part people are overconfident, especially in the front offices, about the quality of the players that they're taking when they trade up. So to me, when I see this this tool in the context of an actual NFL team's decision making, you know I think about it in terms of a it's a decision aid. This is not going to tell you which player is better than the other player. You're, you and your team should be figuring that out on your own. But this can maybe give you a sense of that range of outcomes. It can help you understand, hey, you know, when we, if we feel comfortable about these players and we understand them and we understand the pros and the cons and, and we, we feel good on evaluation, we need to be thinking just as much about player evaluation as we do about player valuation so that we're not making picks that end up um, being a less efficient use of our limited resources in the draft. And we know how important hitting on the draft is because hitting on the draft is for the most part, mostly luck. And that's because it's a very hard thing to do. So any additional edge you can get in the draft, even if it's a little bit, can go a long ways in improving your performance on, uh, on game day on the field, because you end up getting the best players that you, uh, that you would like possible point. Um, and so you're not, you're not uh, utilizing your draft capital in a poor way. And so, you know, teams that you know, have a huge opportunity this year to, to change the trajectory of their team are teams that have tons of draft capital. So this year it's, you know, the, the Raiders again, <laughs> what are they going to do? They have two first round picks. They don't have three like last year, but they have two second rounders. Um, you know, this year it's the, the Dolphins. Jacksonville yeah, Dolphins and Jaguars and another team that has a huge chance is the Lions because they're in a, and the Redskins theoretically who are in, you know, great trade positions. So, you know, the draft can be a way, uh, can be a way that you can turn around your franchise in relatively short order. So those are be those are going to be some teams that I'm following pretty closely, and you know uh, it should be a fun it should be fun to watch. But yeah, that I think it's a cool decision aid. I think it can be really helpful. I know teams are already doing it, um, and so you know potentially for me, I'm trying to reach out to teams that maybe don't have this intelligence as much and are interested in it. So if you're listening, <laughs> maybe who knows? Um, you know I, I'm definitely interested in some of the consulting opportunities that could be out there and being involved in helping out with uh, a team's draft process. I think it'd be pretty cool. Do you know just to follow up on that? Do you can you tell us the teams that are that are doing this? I mean, I would assume the Patriots, but I, I don't know if you sort of yeah. can tell us who who's actually doing it. So I don't know exactly which teams are doing it or not. I know in the past Michael Lombardi has said that the teams that he's been with are doing it. Um, you know, when I I think for the most part the teams that you think of are doing it are doing it, but I think you need to be a little more optimistic. Actually, I think that it wouldn't surprise me to think that a lot of teams are actually doing this. It's just that teams are so secretive. Um, we don't even know sometimes, you know, how many roles around the league because they sometimes appear on the team website. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they have like different titles. Like some teams, they call their, um, their analysts draft like salary cap analysts because mm-hmm. they analyze the salary cap, but they also do other types of data projects. So it wouldn't, I think you'd be surprised. You know, there's teams that, that are well known for being analytically forward, like the Patriots, you know, um, the Browns have Paul D. Podesta, the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, you know, th- those are teams that are, are the Baltimore Ravens, like I said. You know, those the are Colts teams. Probably that, too. Colts as well. Um, that I think you'd be surprised. It wouldn't surprise me if, you know, um, the Jacksonville Jaguars, um, you know, the, the ownership of the Jacksonville Jaguars has ownership in a data analytics company. So it wouldn't surprise me if they were doing some of that stuff as well. You know, data is currency. And so it doesn't surprise me that with the rise of um, people who are really involved in business. So, you know, for example, the Miami Dolphins 
are owned by Stephen Ross, who's the University of Michigan's business school is named after him. So it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, people like that are, are, are using this data or process. They're data driven and they want their teams to be data driven. So it doesn't surprise me that there are a lot of teams that do this around the league. Probably not everybody, but maybe more than you might think. Yeah, that's a that's reassuring. Well, um, Benjamin Robinson, thanks so much for coming on. If you can get quickly, you know, uh, give your Twitter handle and and plug your site and tell everyone where they can find you. Sure. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at b e n j underscore raj underscore robinson. And you can find my site at grindingthemocks.com. So it's like grinding the tape, but grindingthemocks.com. And it'll redirect you to my, my app. And you can play around and, and, and discover and, and explore the data. Yeah, it's a, it's a favorite of mine. It's, uh, it's one of my most frequented pages. So I, uh, I'm probably going there and dive in on some AJ Dillon right now, as a matter of fact. So um, Benjamin <laughs> Robinson, thanks so much for joining us. I, uh, I appreciate your time tonight. And um, uh, for, for this episode of uh, the Analytics of Dynasty, um, uh, you can, again, find all the uh, can find all of the work at grindingthemocks.com. And as well as you can go to analyticsdynasty.com. Uh, I have a series up now on um, storylines I'm watching, so you can find that. It's a daily series coming out uh, at analyticsdynasty.com. You can go get the book, Analytics of Dynasty 2020 edition. It's on sale for $30. It's got the hit rates in there as well. So if you're, you're thinking about the cut lines in terms of uh, Benjamin's draft data, you can find uh, the significance of those uh, in the book as well as the densities and sort of the hit rates on, on a lot of these guys and all the strategy there. Um, and you can find more premium additional audio content at patreon.com slash analytics dynasty. Uh, until next time, uh, continue embracing the variants and we will talk again soon.